Good morning. Um, if we haven't met, my name is Michael. Uh, I've been annoying the rest of the church for the last couple of days. And uh, if, you're, if we haven't met, uh, I hope to meet with you after uh, today's session. And for the rest of us, uh, thank you so much for having me. And it's been really encouraging to, to meet you, to speak with you, uh, to, to hear your stories. And um, I just really want to say it's um, yeah, been a real, uh, a, real, a real highlight for me uh, to be with you. So thank you so, so much for your kindness to me. What have we done so far? Uh, we've been looking at discipleship, if you've just joined us. Uh, yesterday, we looked at uh, Peter's story of discipleship, which sort of mirrored our story, uh, my story, your story uh, of following Jesus uh, based on who Christ is, what he's done, his life, his death, his resurrection, and his ascension, because he continues to pray for us, continues to intervene for us. Jesus is the one who, who calls us to himself. He's the one who charges us. He's the one who enables us. And there is a cost to discipleship. That There is a cost to following Jesus. But we can follow Jesus because he's paid the ultimate cost on the cross. And then we looked at the great commission of Jesus to his disciples, where he says, go and make disciples. So we looked at this charge that Jesus gives us to go to all nations and to make disciples. But today we're looking at a little bit of a different uh, passage uh, in Acts chapter 4 and a little bit of 5. And it's an example of discipleship in the church. It's one of many. Uh, it's not the only example. It's, it's a part of an example of discipleship in the church, which I'd really love to share with you. Because in it we see... The values of discipleship. In it, we see the marks of a church culture marked by discipleship. But also in it, we see the dangers. We see the threats. We see the thorns that come up from sin in our own hearts. Uh, before we get into the passage, why don't we pray and ask God to help us understand his word. Father, again, we want to praise you, our God, holy, majestic, loving, gracious, all-wise, all-merciful. We praise you because you call us to worship you. We praise you because you are present with us. We praise you, Lord God, that we can come before your throne of grace, not on our own merits, but upon the Lord Jesus and what he has done for us. And so we pray through him, that you would please open up our hearts and our minds to your loving, living, powerful word. And may you please plant your word deep into our hearts this morning. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, there's a movie that was released in 2002. It's called Catch Me If You Can. I'm not sure if anyone knows that movie, Catch Me If You Can. It, it captures the life of a guy named Frank Abagnale Jr. He claimed that before his 19th birthday... He successfully performed cons worth millions upon millions of dollars. He first posed as a pilot for Pan Am, then he poses as a doctor, then he poses as a lawyer, as a prosecutor. Now, since the movie, the historical truth of this story has been heavily disputed, actually, but it makes for a great movie, so it's wonderful. You can watch it. Regardless, there are heaps and heaps of stories of people who are caught out being fake. Heaps. 
In February of this year, a 60-year-old lady was charged with fraud in England. She worked for, as a fake doctor for 20 years in England. She worked as a psychiatrist across, across different hospitals, different clinics, all throughout the country. And it's not just overseas. It happens here in Australia as well. Actually, the suburb that I grew up in. A fake junior doctor working in Bankstown Hospital was caught after working there for eight months. Now, I'm sure this stuff never happens in Tassie, but it does. <laughs> it, it happens in the mainland only. In this passage, we, we see something real. Actually, we see something extraordinary. We see the church united as one in Christ. And because they have been given so much in Jesus, they give of themselves. The generosity is marvelous. It's breathtaking. But unfortunately, it's also mixed. It's stained as this hypocrisy and this deception in the church. You see, whenever there is movement in the church, wherever there's this gospel growth, this maturity, this transformation, there's this something's happening by God's Spirit, expect that there'll be attacks. Expect there'll be attacks, and not just from outside, but from within as well. More painfully from within. And we must be alert to, to our own sinful nature. We must be alert. To, to our own sinful motivations. We must be alert to our own sinful intentions. The, the greed that, that springs up, the, the pride that always re rears its ugly head, the deception that can come up. And all of these are toxic. All of these destroy churches. All of these divide churches. All of these can destroy the, the efforts of discipleship that you will try in your church. And so that's what we're going to talk about today. Discipleship looked at as an example in the church. We look at the values of discipleship, discipleship values seen in unity and generosity. But secondly, we're going to look at discipleship killers of hypocrisy and deception. As I said yesterday, I haven't given the details of this talk to Mark. I've given him the titles. I've given him exactly where I'm going. He doesn't know the details. But I can sort of go hard because I'm going home tonight. <laughs> So you can blame me, but you won't catch me. <laughs> so, but please don't blame Mark. All right, let's have, a look at the, let's have a look at the passage. Acts chapter 4, verse 32. All the believers were one in heart and mind. No one claimed that any of their possessions was, theirs, was their own, but they shared everything that they had. So here we see, just from that verse, we see evidence of God's presence among his people in the early church. His power made manifest not only to transform his people from death to life, but to mature them and mold them into the marks of their Savior. They are becoming more and more like Christ. The people reflect God's very heart. And that's what happens when we become disciples. That's what happens when the Spirit of God opens our heart to him, saves us, gives us a new life, the Spirit of God transforms us to be more like Christ. God's grace, which saved them, is now enabling them to change. But like we said yesterday, that will involve suffering. Peter was called to suffering. Making disciples will be costly. Growing together as disciples will be costly. And here it is. God's grace that helped them, that saved them, now is enabling them to share in the sufferings of Christ, in the sacrifice of Christ, expressed how? Here. This is not roses. This is hard. 
to, to be generous is difficult, and this is what we see here. There's suffering, and it's expressed in this extraordinary generosity. This is part of discipleship. It's part of discipleship to see your brother and sister in need and to help them and to care for them, not just financially, but through your time and through your energy and through your, your sacrificial gifts, whatever it takes. Remember, discipleship is following Jesus, but we follow Jesus together as a people. God has saved us as a people, and so we live for him as a people on one mission. And part of that is not just looking forward, it's looking around us. It's looking at where, where are our brothers and sisters, how are they going? And we won't be able to be generous unless we know where they're at. And here we see they knew. They knew who were in need. And they were willing to give and to be generous. But this wasn't, this wasn't a, again, an obligation. This wasn't a religious duty. This was an outflow of who they were in Christ. <clears throat> it was a response. It was a reaction. And it wasn't a response to the people. I'm not going to be generous to Mark because Mark is good to me. I'm generous to Mark because of what Jesus has done for me. And this is what's happening in the church. It's a response to how Jesus has saved them and has given himself to them. And no one was crying out, mine. It, it's extraordinary. Do you know when you, if, you're, if you're a parent and you and your kids finally decide to share this toy after 30 minutes of negotiations, hard, difficult negotiations, and then the, and the, the kid finally decides to share that toy, but then there's a caveat, there's a, there's a little disclaimer right at the end. Yes, I will share the toy, but she has to know that this toy is mine and I want it back. <laughs> and that's normal, and I have to say, okay, I get it, I understand, but let's just give away the toy for the next 20 minutes. It wasn't like that. There was no negotiations like that. There was No one was crying out, give it back, after you've finished with it. No. They were giving of themselves without any, any expectation One in heart, one in soul. You see what unity with Christ does? You know what true unity with Christ means? Is that we see each other as one in Christ. We don't see each other as based on age. We don't see each other based on culture. We don't see each other based on job. We don't see each other based on status. We don't see each other in any other way, but we are brothers and sisters in Christ. This is what true unity with Christ does. It's like a family walking with each other, following Christ. And notice here, I've heard, it, I heard the word reformed so many times this weekend, which is lovely. So many people coming from reformed churches, so many people committed to reformed theology. It's wonderful. It's amazing. I love it. But this, isn't, this unity isn't expressed through just people coming together agreeing on theology. This isn't this unity. This isn't even a unity expressed in people liking to hang out with each other, watching the rugby in the morning. That, that's not it. That was good, by the way. I love that. I'm a, I'm a huge fan of that. I wish I knew that you were going to hold it on the screen. I would have woken up and watched it with you. This, this is actually around 5,000 people by this time in Acts 4 coming together as one. This is extraordinary. Like, if you realize the number, it's extraordinary. How? How is through the Spirit of God who saved them through Christ is now the Spirit of God bringing them together as one. 
they now are one in heart. And they have that devotion. Like yesterday, we talked about Jesus asking Peter to have that love for him, that devotion to him. It's also expressed to each other. The devotion to the Lord Jesus as our Savior is expressed in our devotion to one another as a spirit-filled family. And that's what we are. We are a spirit-filled family. The Spirit unites us together as well as we worship the risen King, Lord Jesus, as we sung. And the beautiful thing is, this is a fulfillment of the Old Testament. Because if you look at verses like Jeremiah 32, 39, it says this, I will give them singleness of heart and action so that they will always fear me and that all will then go well for them and for their children after them. Singleness of heart. But also singleness of action. They're going to be one, united, but they'll be one in mission. They'll be one in purpose. You see, this unity will actually be expressed in the way they live for God's glory together, in making disciples. You see that cycle? It comes full circle. We are disciples. We are saved by grace. And we follow Christ together, looking out for each other, helping each other follow Christ. But this mission that we're on is to make disciples. It's a glorious cycle. And this individual, self-centered, center of the universe type living, which we're all born into, by the way, and we're all tempted to get into, it's, it's stamped out. It's stamped out here in the early church, and it must be stamped out today in the church. Because this stops us from actual discipleship. Discipleship is, is other-person-focused. It's always other-person-focused. It's an outflow of who we are in Christ. In the Arabic culture, so if, you, if you've just joined us, I'm from, I'm from Egypt. I was born in, there, born, born in Egypt, came when I was six years old. I still have Egyptian blood, DNA, still go for the Egyptian soccer team. You know, can't get out of me. Anyway, in the Arabic culture, it's very normal to reciprocate a good deed done to you. Okay, so if someone invites you over to their house for dinner, you invite them over to your house for dinner. Someone gives you a gift, your birthday, give them a gift for, your, for their birthday. I had a really good friend of mine, um, both Egyptians. We were giving each other gifts until like we were 35. It was getting really silly until someone <laughs> finally stopped. And I said, thank God we don't have to keep doing this. But that's normal. It, you reciprocate a good deed. But this isn't what's happening here. This isn't, a, this isn't sort of a favor and an, you do me a favor and I do you a favor. It's a way of life. Because in that time, the people who are being generous, like the people who are recipients of generosity, couldn't give back. They're the ones in need. And so there was no expectation whatsoever. And so it's akin to family relationships. Where, where what is mine is yours. What's yours is mine. And we together as a people of God, we are there for each other. To carry each other's burdens. To sacrifice for one another. To love and to care for one another. Without expecting anything in return. Is this the nature of the church today? Would you say that Cornerstone Hobart is marked by this type of unity and generosity? Would you say that you know each other well enough to see who's in need and who's not? And if there is a need, to know what type of need 
Would you say that you're able, when you get together in groups to pray, that before the person says their prayer point, you sort of know where they're at already? I'm not expecting you to know every single person, ins and outs. I'm not expecting you to be open with every single person, ins and outs. But I am expecting us not to live in our silos at home. To, to, mark, to be marked by this type of unity and generosity, we do need to know and to be concerned for each other, to be able to help, to help each other. This is the nature of the church. And by the way, I'm not asking you to sell your land and your cars, <laughs> but this is a principle that the Bible is teaching us, isn't it? That as the people of God, we are one in Christ, and so we see each other as one in Christ. We see each other as family. At home, what's mine is my wife's. What's mine is my kids' stuff. They, they, don't, they don't see it that way, by the way, but they will eventually. It's the same with the church, the people of God. This isn't a fairy tale that happened in Acts 2 and Acts 4. This is real. And this is where we need to get to. And this is where discipleship really happens. I, I, I pray that my, the church at Strathfield, Sydney, they know this is on my heart very, very heavily. It's not just about me meeting with someone else and helping them and praying with them. No, I, I want our church to be a family. I tell people at church, you know when you walk past someone you don't say hello? That's very offensive. I tell them that. Because you're a family. If I walked past my wife and I didn't greet her or my kid or I didn't greet them, that's wrong. How do I see you? I see you. You are my family. You are my blood. You are also, I'm saved by grace. You're saved by grace. I'm in desperate need of this grace. You are also desperate need of this grace. I'm not better than you. You're not better than me. We are together on this, in this family and we are on mission together. And if we're on mission together, then I must help you. And you will help me because we have a mission to live for God's glory in making disciples. Are you with me? So this unity and generosity will actually help us being on mission. Have a look at verse 33. That's one verse, by the way. So I hope you have time today. Just joking, we'll finish soon. Verse 33, with great power, the apostles continued to testify to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus and God's grace was so powerfully at work in them all that there were no needy persons among them. For from time to time, those who owned land or houses sold them, brought the money from the sales and put it at the apostles' feet and it was distributed to anyone who was in need. God's grace, again, working so powerfully, enabling these ordinary people to live in these extraordinary ways. But, but notice, what's at the core of this passage is that it's enabling the apostles to do what? To testify to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. That was what they were doing. And that's how the church grew. It was the proclamation of Jesus, that he is actually the Messiah, that he came, that he lived the perfect life, that he died, that he rose. They proclaimed Jesus. And the church grew. You know, if you read the, 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 the book of Acts, you'll continue to see this line. That the, the church grew in number. Many were added. And this is what's happening. And what's at the center? The proclamation of the risen Lord Jesus. You see, that unity and that generosity was able to help them be on mission to continue to proclaim Christ. 
And by the way, the apostles didn't need to start a sermon series on money or generosity. So there's nothing wrong with that, by the way. But it wasn't that. And it wasn't, uh, you know, that these fancy preachers wearing Armani suits convincing people to give money. It wasn't that either. It was the preaching of the gospel of the Lord Jesus that, that, that convicted, that captivated people to give and to be generous. Friends, the gospel of the Lord Jesus saves us, it transforms us, it sends us. So that we give of ourselves to our brothers and sisters. We give of ourselves to see others come to know Christ as Lord and Savior. It's an outflow of who we are in Christ. And so let me encourage you, practically. Yesterday we talked about the structured sort of meetups that you'd have with others, helping each other become, helping each other follow Christ. And then there's going to be the unstructured stuff, watching the rugby, going to the pub, going to the cafe, having people over for dinner, whatever it is. Season your conversation with the gospel of the Lord Jesus. Yesterday, after the second talk, uh, there were questions about, you know, just informal questions about opportunities that you have with people, with non-Christians. I don't know how to just to take to seize the opportunity. Oh, I don't know how to, I don't know how to bring up Jesus to someone who, who's a, this non-Christian friend who I know, but I don't know how to bring up Jesus. Why don't you have a couple of people over from church, over your house for a barbecue? And invite those non-Christians as well. Just that one or two non-Christian. And bring to come together. Let them see the, the, the community of Christians, how they operate. Let them hear the conversations that happen. And why not bring up the gospel? Because that's what you do as Christians, isn't it? Isn't that what we should, we should be doing? We encourage each other. We correct each other. We, we uplift each other with the word of God. Bring your non-Christians into that fray and see what happens. The gospel of the Lord Jesus must be central to everything we do and it must season everything that we try and do, our conversations, structured or unstructured. And that transformation will be seen in the life of, our, in, in the life of the church. Have a look. Before I get actually into the, the negative part, um, yesterday I encouraged you to think about the difference between the lone wolf Christian, which is not the, this is not the picture of Christianity. It's more the, the pack of sheep walking together, following our Savior. But I didn't tell you the direction of the pack of sheep. You see, all of this unity and generosity sort of looks nice and it feels good, but we, we don't just sort of sit in our silos and we think, okay, it feels really good that we're all one family. Let's just pat each other on the back and encourage each other. And No, no, no. There's actually there's a momentum, there's a growth, there's a direction, there's a, there's a movement that we are supposed to move, be moving towards. What is, what is the early church trying to do here? They want others to know Christ the Saviour. As you walk hand in hand, as you expose yourself to others and you allow others to help you and you are generous to help others, you are doing that in motion of following Christ. And what was Christ? What was his business of doing when he was on earth, when he was in Galilee, when he was with the sick and the lame and, 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 and the sinners? What was he doing? He was making disciples. Our path in discipleship, what will grow us in discipleship together as the people of God is guess what? Making disciples. It's being on mission together. 
the biggest moments of my life where I have grown as a Christian has been with other people. It hasn't necessarily been by myself. It's been when, you know, short-term mission. It's been together serving in music with others. It's been together praying together. All of those things, by the way, is movement towards mission. What's that doing? It's propelling us to live for God's glory, to live to make disciples. Friends, you cannot live growing by yourself. You will grow together. But do the things together that will help you to grow. Praying together, serving together, and being on mission together, making disciples. All of those things will grow us as the people of God. So yes, by all means, walk together hand in hand. But do it together on the path, on the mission towards making disciples. Unfortunately, the second part of the passage is not so positive. The early church was not perfect. And I love that the writer Luke doesn't shy away from showing us the warts and all of the church. We have to see it. Why do we have to see it? Because it exposes our own weaknesses. Like today, the church isn't perfect. There are some of us who are not honest. There are some of us who are not faithful. And frankly, there are some of us who are not Christians. That's the church. And we're not always going to be, even as Christians, we're not always going to be honest. And we're not always going to be faithful. We're going to be mild with sin and those weaknesses are going to come up. I love how Spurgeon puts it. He says, the day we find the perfect church, it becomes imperfect because we join it. (laughs) That's the truth. The church is made up of imperfect people. And here it's seen. Have a look. Chapter 5, verse 1 to 6. Now a man named Ananias, together with his wife, Sapphira, also sold a piece of property. With his wife's full knowledge, he kept back part of the money for himself, but brought the rest and put it at the apostles' feet. Then Peter said, Ananias, how is it that Satan has so filled your heart that you have lied to the Holy Spirit and have kept for yourself some of the money you received for the land? Didn't it belong to you before it was sold? And after it was sold, wasn't the money at your disposal? What made you think of doing such a thing? You've not lied just to human beings, but to God. And when Ananias heard this, he fell down and died. And great fear seized all who heard what had happened. Then some young men came forward, wrapped up his body and carried him out and buried him. Friends, this is the first time in the early church since Judas betrayed Jesus that we see this internal, serious, internal conflict in the church. And you notice, as soon as there is growth, as soon as there is gospel movement, as soon as there's this maturity happening, this unity and generosity and things are happening by the Spirit of God, there is, there is Satan seeking to destroy it. There is Satan seeking to bring it down. And it's not just through the external attacks. No, this is within. This is within. And so what do we do? We have to be watchful. We have to be alert. But we also have to be watchful and alert and prayerful about our own sinful desires. Our own sinful nature. And sometimes it's not so clear to us. I mean, even when you look at this passage, when you look at this story, you think, Man, at face value, I don't, I don't think this was so bad. Like, really? It was, it was so, why did God, why was God so harsh with them and so swift in his judgment? I mean, they still gave money. Yes, they kept some, but they still gave money to the church. The church, I'm sure, is going to benefit from that money. Why is God so harsh with them? What's the problem here? Well, Peter says, doesn't he? He says, the field was theirs. 
The money of the sale was theirs. No one was forcing them to sell their land. No one was forcing them. But what did they want to do? They were, they were strategizing to lie to make themselves look good. They had no obligation to give, but they gave and they chose to lie. They chose to deceive the church and they chose actually to deceive the Spirit of God, which is very serious. They're treating God as if he's not there, as if he's not present in his church, which sort of takes us back to the original sin of Adam and Eve, doesn't it? They rebel against God, completely disregarding his presence as if he's not there. Friends, God takes his church very seriously. And God takes the unity and the holiness of his church very seriously. And the fellowship and the unity of the church is precious to him. And so he does take seriously and judges very seriously those who want to divide. Those who want to destroy that unity. And when you read this story, it's hard, it's hard not to shudder at the judgment. But what we need to realize is that God is present amongst his church. Make no mistake. He is present and he will judge now, we don't see this type of judgment happening today, but God is still present and he will judge in his time and in his way. And ultimately, he will judge when the Lord Jesus returns. And you might think, I don't know, why, why are you bringing up this passage? You were talking about discipleship. You might think, well, this, there's no way I'm going to be an Ananias and Sapphira. That's not me. That's not my temptation. That's not my weakness. I'm not a fake. I'm not a hypocrite. And certainly not about discipleship. Now, let me tell you, we all can fall into hypocrisy. We all can fall into deception. We all do. I fall into hypocrisy and deception. And let me ask you, just to help us all along, have you ever tried to make yourself look more godly in front of others? You know when, you, when we pray in groups, do you think more about God or do you think about how other people are going to perceive your prayer? Do you try and look in front of others as to be more patient than you actually are or more generous? Have you ever sort of given a, a white lie to someone, white lie, to someone in the church just to restore your reputation in front of them? Or do you ever engage in that harmless gossip in the pub or at the cafe with your brother and sister in Christ to gather support from them against someone else? And if you have family members at church, would they say that you have a home face and a church face? Would they see the difference? Let me tell you something so that you can feel much better. My kids sometimes feel see the difference. Yes, I'm weak and I'm broken. Mate. You, you invited the wrong person to come and speak at your camp. <laughs> Find someone better next year, please. We're all... We are, can all fall into this trap. A few months ago, a couple of months ago, my daughter's piano teacher, she always comes late to, her le to the lessons. Always. I mean, I expect her to come late. But this time, it was better than any other time. She was more than half an hour late at this point in time. And I'm thinking... I, I, actually, I wasn't just thinking. <laughs> I actually just said it out loud. I couldn't, I couldn't help myself. This, oh, man, this piano teacher is really killing me. And one of my daughters heard this and she says to me, she looked up and said to me, 
Oh, Dad, you don't, you don't act like that when she comes. You know, when she comes, you're like, oh, it's all right. I know traffic is hard, it's bad. I know, don't worry. Come anytime. It's okay. And this situation, this is a very, very sterile situation. It's exposed that actually, yes, I can fall into hypocrisy. My kids can see me this way here and this way there. And we can all fall into hypocrisy. And why do, why do we fall into hypocrisy, though? Why do I give you a face here, but I give you a different... But really, I'm a, I'm, a, I'm a different person at home. By the way, it's not always the case. It's because of pride. I want you to like me. I want you to, I, I want you to think I'm good. And that's what we all want to do, by the way. We, we, we want to restore our reputation. We want to, we, want to, we, we want to seek some glory for ourselves. We want a good image. We, we, want to be, we want to look like we've got it all together and, and that we're good people and that, 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 that we're growing in our spiritual lives and we hide our brokenness. And friends, let me tell you, this type of deception, hypocrisy, which is very common amongst all of us, it's common even in our discipleship. It's common even when we meet up in small groups or one-on-one and we help each other follow Christ. It comes up. I've seen it. You might think, how? I've seen it, and I even experience it myself sometimes. I've seen people be territorial around who they disciple. I've seen it. No, no, no. You can't disciple him because I'm discipling him. I'm meeting up with him on a regular basis. You can't take him. You think that's silly? I've seen it. Sometimes I even think it. Why do we get territorial? It's because we want, we want to be in the center. We want people to look at us. We want to, be, we want to be those people who help other people. We want people to rely on us. We want to feel superior. We even call those people our disciples. They're not your disciples. They're not my disciples. They're Jesus' disciples. And, and our role is to point to him, our chief, chief shepherd. Friend, is that if, if the best thing about discipling someone else or a group of other people is have them look at you and make you feel good about yourself, obviously you're in it for the wrong reasons. But sometimes this is what happens. We feel good about, what, about our impact on other people. And so it's threatening for us for them to move on to someone else. That's hypocrisy. That's deception. Or what about what we do or say in those meetups? Are we quick to rebuke? Are we quick to correct, even judge the other person when we ourselves fall into the exact same brokenness and weaknesses? Making it out as if we've got our lives all sorted, it's all down pat, making ourselves look spiritually superior to the other person. That's deception, that's hypocrisy. We hide behind the mask in front of others, we're not genuine. There is, I'm not saying correcting is wrong, by the way. We do need to correct. I've been saying it all weekend. We need to correct each other. We need to train for righteousness. Yes, we do need to do that. But there's a correcting that is good for the person and there's a correcting that makes you feel good. Don't do the latter. Friends, don't underestimate your, your susceptibility to sin, to pride, to jealousy, to greed, to hypocrisy. Even in your efforts in discipling other people. It divides, it destroys. And it would be good that we remember who we're following. It would be good to remember 
who is present with us. That God is present and he isn't waiting to strike us down. He is seeking to help us. He isn't asking us to be people who we're not. We, we are all broken, weak, sinners, saved by grace, and we are completely reliant on Him who goes before us. It would be good for us to be genuine about where we're at with each other. We're all in the same boat, helping each other follow Christ together, hand in hand. Friends, as I close, let me encourage you. The one who saved us, the one who called us, the one who charges us, is the one who's paid the price for us. Yes, he's present and he is at the right hand of the Father praying for us. And so if you're, if you're guilty of any of these things that I've talked about, we're all guilty of it. God's presence is there helping us to restore us, just like he restored Peter. He's there to restore us, enabling us to live for him and to help others live for him. As we are together, one in Christ, on mission to make disciples. Friends, what I've said today and yesterday is very costly. And sometimes you think, well, actually, I don't know if I'm I don't know if I can do this. I want to finish with this. This year I read the biography of John uh, Payton. Not sure if Mark's told you about him. He's a, if you don't know him, John Payton was a missionary to the New Hebrides just South Pacific Islands in the 1800s. He and his wife landed there in 1858. It's the southern part of uh, the islands. It's in the island called Tana. And they built a house. There were other, there was another couple there as well that they served with. They're from Canada. But, but in those days, the people there in, in these islands, they were all cannibals. And John Payton and his wife, they were surrounded by these painted cannibals. They were savages. They were, they were vicious, actually. And this threat was at their door every single day. They, they would never sort of like live in peace thinking that no threat of harm would ever befall them. But they were committed to making disciples. Committed. Three months after they arrived, they had their firstborn son. And he writes that his wife and baby enjoyed two days of health before they both became really ill. His wife eventually died from tropical fever only 19 days after the baby was born. And the baby also passed away after a month or so of being born. But John Payton kept going. I don't know how. He kept going. He just kept going unfailingly on mission with this other couple. In spite of all that happened in his family, in spite of the constant animosity from the people that he's trying to reach, he kept going. And as you read this story, you wonder, why in the world are you still doing this? Why? And how? how? How do you keep going? Is it because of his grit and determination? Is it because of his strength and his courage? Is it because of, that he has a strong personality, he's just stubborn? <laughs> Maybe he's all of those things, but that's not why. <laughs> It's through the finished work of Christ. It's through the finished work of Christ, the one who called him, the one who charged him, the one who enables him, the one who continues to pray for him, the one who's called us, the one who charges us, the one who enables us, the one who continues to pray for us. We may not be called to go overseas, but we're called to make disciples here and now wherever God has placed you and we're called to do it together. And guess what? 
it's in that effort of making disciples that we as his disciples will keep growing together as one in Christ. Let's pray. Our Father, we praise you and thank you with all of our hearts because you sent your Son, our Lord Jesus Christ, whilst we were still sinners, to deliver us from death and darkness into a new life, into your glorious light. Oh, Father, we are undeserving of such grace. We are undeserving of such mercy. And so, Lord God, we fall upon our knees thanking you, praising you. Lord God, we ask that you would please, as disciples of the Lord Jesus, would you please unite us as one? Would you please help us to see each other together as saved by grace, one in Christ, one of heart, one of mind, one of purpose, of making disciples? And Lord God, I pray that we will be close enough to each other and concerned enough for each other and love each other well enough to see our struggles, to see each other's struggles and to care and to give and to support as we're all together on mission to making disciples, as we're all together on mission to declaring the gospel of the Lord Jesus. Oh Lord, I thank you for this wonderful church. I thank you, Lord God, for their, their love for you and their love for each other. Would you make your face shine upon them? Would you bless them? Would you continue to mature and grow and transform? May so many people come to know Christ Jesus as Lord and Savior through the ministry of this church. Oh, Lord God, we thank you so much for the, for the fruit so far, and we know and can expect so much more of what you will do in and through Cornerstone Hobart. And we pray it all in Jesus' precious and powerful name. Amen.